in this church, we believe that the Bible is God's words to us. It's His words on how we're to live life. If, if you're having a hard time in marriage, God's word will speak directly to your marriage. If you're wondering how to raise godly children, God's word will speak directly to raising godly children. If you're wondering how to deal with that naughty neighbor you have, God will help you deal with your naughty neighbor. If you're having problems at work or if you're looking for how to deal with your finances, if you're wondering how do I spend my time in, in enjoying all that God's given to me, God will speak directly to you in those things. And, and the difficulty is, is that we understand all those things. We, we get it into our head. We, we know what it says to us. But the hard part is digging into it, listening to God's voice, because sometimes you have to unearth some things in order to get what God's telling us. And, and the place where the church, in all of its study of God's word, in my estimation, has fallen down is living out what we've read and what we proclaim to be. We get it up here, but we have a hard time living it out here. And the theological word for that is orthodoxy, which simply means to have right beliefs. And having right beliefs is the foundation for, for and very important for what we're going to do. But if we just stop with right beliefs, orthodoxy, then we're going to be a frustrated bunch of people because we need to have orthopraxy, which is the right practice of orthodoxy, the right beliefs. So it's having the right beliefs and then putting them into practice in our life that really fulfills what God intended for his word to do in our lives. And, and the Bible teaches us that we need to step into it, step into what God's saying. A lot of times we read it and we step back, but what God's calling us to do is, is to read it, to study it, to understand it, and then step into it and to start to live it. And that's a tough job. That's hard. That's not easy. That's why God gave us the Holy Spirit because he's going like, you cats aren't going to be able to do this on your own. You're going to need some help and so I'm going to help you out. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit who's going to empower you to live a holy life. And, and so we want to step into it. But here's, here's kind of the thing that we have to deal with in, in our world is that there are those who are on the outside of what I call the community of faith and they've maybe read the Bible, they've picked it up and take a look at it, and they read it, and you know what they, their conclusion is? Is that it's ancient literature. It may be interesting to read, but it has no bearing on my life today in the 21st century. I've looked at it, I've read it, and it's just old kind of thinking, and it doesn't do anything for us. And so the, and the Bible's just not relevant to life today. And those people who read the Bible and live their life according to the Bible and believe everything that it says, they're living with their heads in the cloud because it's not relevant to their life. And so the, the Bible has no relevancy and neither does Christianity have any relevancy to my life. It's just, it, it might be a good read, but it, it doesn't apply to real life right now. And, and that kind of leads us up into our study today because we're still in 1 Corinthians and we're looking at chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. And in this passage today, Paul 
is once, a de- once again dealing with right practice. That's what he's talking to us about. He wants us to understand what right practice is. And he's writing because it, it was this, this whole idea of having freedom and rights. Because when we came into faith with Christ, the Bible tells us that if you believe in the Son, the Son will set you free and you will be free indeed. We have this, this freedom. We have, we have new rights in the kingdom of God. And so what God's calling us to do is he wants us to, to step into those and live in the freedom and live in the rights that are all provided to us through Jesus Christ. Now, when we take a look at this passage this morning, what we're looking at is, is that there's something going on in the Corinthian church with how they're living out their life according to the rights that they've been given by Christ. And so the big question that we want to, in our text is asking us today is, how should the members of a gospel-shaped community exercise their liberties and privileges found in Christ? I mean, that's, that's what it's saying to the, to the Corinthian church. That's the question that's kind of being posed. It's also the question that's being posed to us. Because we do have liberty. We do have freedom. We, we, we can live now as free people. We're not bound to anything. We're no longer bound to sin. Shame no longer has any control over our life. Religious activity is no longer the thing that drives us. Pleasing people is not the name of the game. It's, it's being faithful to God, and what I do reflects the glory of God in my life. And <clears throat> so this morning when we talk about rights, we're, we're talking about these liberties and privileges that are given to us by Christ, but it's not that kind of modern-day human rights thought process. The understanding of rights is a firmly held belief that an individual has the right to do anything that they ever want to do as so long as another human being is not endangered or harmed. That's kind of the, the, the meaning behind rights. And it, it, we even kind of think that way within the church, that, you know, all things are permissible. We can do. Well, all things are good. God created all this good stuff for us. And so I can step into it and live in that. And, and so what happens, though, is, is that, that these rights are kind of what we've taken to be uh, self-expression or self-actualization. And we hold them to be the ultimate goods for us. That it's the ultimate thing. And so that anything that would hinder my rights then inherently is bad. It's, it's not stepping into it and, and living it. And so it kind of sounds like this. I can do what I want. It's my right. Who cares if someone has an issue with what I do? It isn't my problem. It's their issue. Let them deal with it. That's what we do in the church too. Yeah, I, I mean, what are they getting their panties in a knot about it. It's no big deal. I mean, if they have an issue, that's their problem. It's not my problem. And what we do then is we also come to the point where we start to take our rights and the actions that we live out in them and we start to justify why I can do what I do. We, we bring justification to it because we want to make sure that everybody else understands that what we're doing 
isn't against the word of God. It isn't we're not sinning in any way. We're just doing what we want to do because we've been given that freedom in Jesus. And what happens is that we, we come to the point where we not only know we have those rights, sometimes we take it beyond anything that God intended and we start to demand our rights. Because all the individual rights are justifiable, so it's rarely questioned on our rights as believers. We talk about, I can do this or I can do that. And really what we should be asking is, should I or ought I to do that? Now going back to Paul's letter to the church, Paul had to deal in this eighth chapter, he was, he was specifically addressing two different groups of people in the church. And one of these groups was representing the permissive side of it, or, or they were progressive in their thinking. And the other was the restrictive party, or they were conservative. And these two groups had different concerns. The primary concern for the progressive was personal freedom, whereas on the conservative side, it was to uh, pursue personal morality. And these concerns, when carried to their extremes, I mean, really out to the far ends are debauchery on one end and legalism on the other end. And God's never called us to live at extremes. He wants us to kind of bring a balance to all that we're doing. And and so uh, Paul's addressing the permissive party in this passage that we're looking at today. Some of you are going like, well, is he ever going to talk about those moralistic idiots believe me he'll get to the idiots but we'll walk through this this morning so first corinthians 8 verses 1 through 4 now concerning food offered to idols we know that all of us possess knowledge this knowledge puffs up but love builds up if anyone imagine that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know but if anyone loves god he is known by god Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So Paul's Paul's coming now and he's going to talk to this, this progressive people. And the progressive people are the ones who saw no problem of partaking of food, meat in particular. It was the kind of the meat issue offered to idols. Now let me help you understand something. We eat meat at least two meals a day, maybe three, uh, because it's readily available to us. And we, so, you know, we want a steak, we get a steak. We want, you know, kosher ham. There is no such a thing, but we wish there were. But we can get meat whenever we want to. It, 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 but in Paul's day, it was a rare thing to have meat. And by the way, the only people that really did have meat were the rich and wealthy people. And, and so what was, what was happening is, is in the temples of these false gods, they would offer sacrifices of meat and, and they would have a, a feast around this celebration time. Everybody was invited to come and participate in it. Or they would take the leftover meat down to the market that was sacrificed to these idols and they would sell it in the marketplace. So by and large in Corinth, 
when you bought meat in the marketplace, it had been sacrificed to an idol. If you were going to a dinner party at the temple, it was a, a sacrifice to the idols. And so here we've got Paul coming because we've got these, these people in the church who are writing to Paul and they've given this theological explanation in expectation that he would back up their position. And basically what they're saying is we know these idols are nothing. We know they have no heart. They have no pulse. They, are, they can't do anything. They're just rock, stone, and wood. And they don't do anything. But you know what? We're going down there because we're going to have a free meal. And we still love God. We still love Jesus. But look, hey, if it's free, let's go get it. And that was the foundation of their orthodoxy of what they believed. And so when you see the phrase, all of us possess knowledge... Paul's making this reference to the members of this group of people. They, they understood that because there was only one God, there was nothing of substance or behind an idol or anything. The knowledge, this knowledge they had led them to embrace the common cultural practice of eating this meat sacrificed to idols. So this is one of those passages where people today, they read that passage, they look at it, and, and they say like, this is stupid because... It doesn't apply to the 21st century. We don't have sacrifices to idols. We don't sit around in temples eating meat sacrificed to idols. We don't go down to the marketplace and buy meat that was sacrificed to idols. That's ridiculous. See what I mean? The Bible has no bearing on real life in the 21st century. Well, I have two things to say to that. The first one is we have a very narrow North American view of the world. It may not be happening in Lander or in the United States as far as we know, but it might be happening. But the other thing is, is that around the rest of the world, in Africa, Southeast Asia, other places around the world, they still make sacrifices to idols, to false gods. They're still serving meat up. And so this passage that Paul wrote is so much in tune with what's going on in our world that the churches around the world need to study this and understand what it is that Paul's really saying. The second thing that I would say about this is that there are principles buried into this passage that apply to every Christ follower. We just need to unearth them to see what Paul has to say to us. And that's what we're going to do. Um, in these verses, Paul's bringing the orthopraxy into play by reminding the permissive group that most important thing is to love God. And that overrides the premise of having a knowledge about something that seems to be absolute in giving us freedom. Because they, they're, what they're saying is, is that we absolutely know that, that these idols are nothing, that, that, that there's only one God. And so in that, we've got this freedom to do whatever we want. And Paul's going like, you guys are really missing the mark of the, the, the um, privileges and rights that we have in Christ. Christ's followers who understand the gospel and God's ownership of the world are not moralistic and, and rigid. You see, the other side of the group, the conservatives were going like, these guys are like going down a path that's just wrong, dead wrong. They're, they're messing this thing up. They're making a mess of the church. They need to get their moral compass set up straight. 
But, but if we really understand God's ownership, we know that God's not moralistically rigid. And if an individual hasn't encountered a Christianity that is primarily about measuring behavior, about tracking morality, about what he can't do, then that individual has been given an incomplete and distorted picture of what it means to be a Christ follower. Does the Bible throw morality out the door? No. Heavens no. But in the same breath, are we following a strict, rigid plan of religiosity in order to earn something with God? No. Absolutely not. That's what grace is all about. And so we've got these two contrasting things. And when the when the gospel comes into our life and it transforms us, what it does is it unearths, uncovers former idols for what they really were. And we all have, by the way, idols in our closet. We don't want anybody to know about those idols. We want to kind of keep them back there where it isn't obvious to anybody else, but yet we know we like to go back into that closet and have a little worship time with these lifeless, beingless, substanceless frauds. Because that's what they are. They promise you something they can never deliver. Jesus, on the other hand, promises you something he always delivers. So we can't find our ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in the consumption of good things like food or wine or recreation or hunting or work. We can't find our ultimate satisfaction there. And once we understand this, then we're able to fully enjoy everything for the creational blessing it is. In other words, what God has done is he's come and he's, he's created all these good things for us. And when we keep them in the place that God meant for them to be, and we understand God's position in all of that, then what, would, what do we find? We find greater joy in in. in participating in these various things. It's no longer bad to participate in it. It's a good thing because God says it's good. All of God's creation, he said, it is good. Go back and read it in Genesis. God created and he said it was good. God created and he said it was good. God created man and woman and he said it is very good. And so it's all good, but it's all good as long as it's in the right place. So whether it's food, art, music, hunting, outdoor activities... All these things are there for our good and God's glory, but they cannot be the focal point of our life. If we live for the pleasure of anything other than the pleasure of God, we've given way to putting a lifeless, beingless, substanceless thing as our God, and it's just a fraud, and it will rob your soul and leave you empty. And so here's where we've got the right knowledge. We have the right knowledge. We know that it's only God that brings us the very desire that we long for, the very thing that makes everything else we do have meaning. That is what we know. And yet in practice, we continue to invest into the deception that something or someone else will give us only what God can adequately provide. We have all this knowledge that gives us the tools for living in a deeper connected way with God, and yet it is still just knowledge. And Paul says that that knowledge puffs up and keeps us away from really experiencing God the way it's supposed to. The reason that it puffs is 
up is, is that we really believe that the knowledge we have is knowledge in itself is sufficient to meet my needs. And he's going like, no, that's not the deal at all. What does he say? He says, love builds up. Knowledge doesn't build anything. All knowledge does is gives you a, a greater platform to speak to things that maybe you don't know as much about as you think you do. And in the end, you look foolish. Because there's somebody that always knows something more about whatever you know, and they know more about it, and they'll make you look stupid. Not because they mean to, but because we put our foot in our mouth and we make a mess of things. And so the great part about this whole part of where Paul says love builds up, there is nothing better than to really have a deep, intimate relationship with God through Christ because in that love that we have, we are known by God. I mean, at the end of the day, do you really care if some rich and famous person knows you and calls you out by name? Apparently, I'm an artist. I'm drawing flies. The, the, the point that Paul really wants us to get is, is that the most important thing for us to understand is that God knows us by name. And guess what he calls us? Sons and daughters, right? You're my children. I'm pretty sure God's going to call me Kenny when I get to heaven. Because, you know, it kind of happens when you're little. That's what's my name. Everybody called me Kenny. Somewhere between, you know, 56 and 57, I got to Ken. And now it's slipping back to Kenny again. And I'm okay with that. That, that doesn't bother me one little bit. But God has this name for me, and he called me by that name because I am known by God. You're known by God. But in this being known by God, you also have absolutely every liberty to exercise your rights in all areas because you're known by God. Our right and privileges are in Christ and they're far greater than what we could ever imagine. So if our rights and privileges in Christ are so astounding and if he sets all created things in their proper places for his glory and our enjoyment, then what is the source of consternation for the, for the Corinthian church? What's our consternation in this church on the kind of so-called gray areas? Why do we get all worked up about this stuff? Although the progressives had good orthodoxy, right beliefs, they were completely missing orthopraxy, right practice. They were misapplying the understanding of the gospel and were living lives that were antithetical to the gospel. Because even though they had the right theology in the sense that they said, all of us possess knowledge and an idol has no real existence, their problem was that their good theology was not working itself deeply into their hearts. Because the aim of the rights of, for us in Christ we're supposed to be a bent toward love. The reason why Jesus gave us all these rights, the reason why we have freedom, the reason why we have all this stuff in our favor, in our corner, is because it, it's supposed to bend us from 
um, self-expression, selfishness, selfish ideas, living for self, and now be a bent towards love towards other people. That's where Christ is calling us, to come and now live in our freedom to love other people. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. For although there are um, may be so-called gods in heaven or earth, as indeed there are many small gods, small lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, if you have a pen or a pencil or some kind of a marking device, you need to underline those that verse in your Bible because this verse is highly significant on Paul's declaration of Jesus Christ being uh, God Almighty. He's not a lesser God. He's not a, 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 a whipping boy for God the Father. He is the same as in existence and power and might and understanding and creation equal to the Father. And that's what he's saying here. Because understand, take a look at what he says. He says, all things are from God the Father and for him. That's the Father. And when it comes to Jesus, it is through him that all things exist. And through him, why we exist. Why do we exist? For the glory of God. Now, sin has a way of messing up God's glory in our lives, doesn't it? So when, when we take a look at what's going on here, what Paul's pointing out right here at this point is he's talking to them now about their practice, their practical outpouring of this love. And it's out of God's love for us that the Father's love and the love of Jesus that we have been given a chance to have this relationship with him. And the aim of this freedom that we have through Jesus is love. The greatest commandment, Jesus said, is to love God with all of your being. And the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so what Paul's going like, he's going like, yeah, you've got this freedom, but you're misapplying your freedom to life. You're applying your freedom to yourself for selfish desires to be met. You're not taking into consideration anything else that's going on. And our freedom in Christ is to build one another up in love. That's where it's supposed to bend. Look at verse 7. Because Paul's going like, yeah, here's the truth. Here's the theology. Here's what we know. This is how we live it out. And then he goes on to say, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. In other words, what they're doing is they're watching their brothers and sisters go down to the temple, join in the festivities, eat the meat, eat the food, offered to sacrifices, and those people are going like it's just food. But the other people who are new to faith, who have not grown in love, they don't understand all this stuff about God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and that we exist for Him and through Him, and it's all because of Jesus. They haven't gotten that settled into their hearts. And so what they're doing is they're coming in new, and they're looking what's going on, they're going like, what? Well, if they can do that, then I can do that. <coughs> so they go into the temple. 
And they slip back into old habits and old practices of worshiping idols. They really believe there's something to this. They haven't gotten the concept that there's one God who is over all things. He's the creator and sustainer of all life. They haven't gotten that theological input into their life. And so when they look at what's going on here on the playing field in their own church with the people that are eating and eating at the, the temple and eating food offered to idols, they're going like, there must be some truth to this because look at these guys who are much more spiritual than I am stepping in and participating in, in this. Yeah, there's freedom to do that. But at what cost? It says that they're being defiled. Because of the actions of the progressive people in the church, these people are just slipping back into this false worship. Go on to verses 8 through 11. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat it. We are no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Now Paul's heart is getting at the issue here. Uh, Let's, let's make sure we really understand this, okay? It, whatever you consume is not going to commend you, bring you and make you a better person in front of God. Likewise, just because you ate something isn't going to disqualify you from a relationship <laughs> with God. Well, Paul's point is, is that it's, it's not what you put into your body that makes you a person who follows Christ, not make, makes you know, creates this relationship that you have with Jesus and, and strengthens it and deepens it. It's not anything on the externals. It's only what happens in the heart. It's God's work in your heart where he's growing you. And the way that we grow is because we hear the word of God. It comes into our ears. It settles into our hearts. And that's not enough. There's one more step. We step out and we start to believe it and obey it. That's when we start to grow in our relationship with Christ. And, and, and they're in, in this whole right of freedom to be able to do that, this group in the church was pressing their freedoms without considering the social impact of their actions. They weren't thinking about the other people in the church who had just come to Christ. They weren't thinking about the other people with whom they're associating with in the community. It, it was it was probably really confusing to, to these people who are going like, all right, now you've said you're, you're no longer worshiping this idol because it's dead, there's nothing to it, there's no life to it, it, it has no, no substance, and you're following the one true God who brings life to everything, but yet you're coming back over here and you're, you're celebrating with us around the table of this false God, and yet you say you claim to live over here in this real world with the living God. You see how that can be confusing to the outside world? They're going like, I don't get it. You're saying this over here, but you're living this over here. Because you're saying this new God that you're worshiping gives you freedom to do this. But you're just coming back and and eating from the same old trough. You're drinking from, from bad water. And the young guys in the church or the young ladies who are new in faith, they're going like, 
I don't know how you can do that. It's confusing to me. We don't have the opportunity to exercise our rights in a bubble. We don't think that it has makes it different. But our actions affect those around us. What we do does matter. And if we think it doesn't, we're just naive on that whole thing. Our culture and society are a result of countless individuals exercising their personal rights for good or for ill. We're all affected by it. Everything. So, every action, every deed, every word, every suggestion has some kind of an effect on those around us, especially on those with whom we are in close contact. So here, let me break this really down well for you. Mom and dad, the words you use and the way you use them will have an effect on your children. How you talk about your neighbors or other people in the church, they'll pick up on it. If you're a yeller, they'll be a yeller. If you use bad language, they'll use bad language. If you gossip, they will gossip. Get, are, are you starting to get the point? They're going to mimic and copy the way that you interact with people in the church and outside of the church. They've always got their radar on. Remember, more is caught than taught. And so if you've got... You, you take a look at little Johnny and little Susie and you go like, I really love these kids, but this little part of their behavior drives me nuts and I wish they didn't have it. Now go stand in the mirror and go like, that's me. And the way that you change the culture and the behavior in your home is by changing your behavior. You change your behavior and you start to say, you know what? I was wrong when I said that. You know what? I should never have thought that. I should never have made that suggestion. I should have never have done that. And you say that to your children because all of a sudden they're going to go like, wait a minute, mom and dad are doing something different here. There's a new standard that we're putting up in the household and that standard is a little bit higher and it calls for holiness and righteousness in Christ. And so I need to step up my game and start to do what mom and dad are doing. You know what leadership in the home is? It's taking your children from here to there. And the only way you can take them from here to there is if you're already on the way there. You can't stand here and point to there. You have to lead them there. But this whole thing doesn't just apply to the home. The words, everything we do matters at the, in our workplace, in the marketplace, and in our recreation. Everything that we do, everything that we say, every implication that we make has an effect on somebody for good or for ill. <coughs> and in all of this, what we have failed to do is we've failed to think about the interests of other people. We think about our own. You remember a couple of weeks ago I told you we're still pretty selfish? You take the picture and who do you look for in the picture? Yourself. And the way you look is what determines whether it's a good picture or a bad picture. And so... In this, the life we've been called to is one of love. Love that's not a feeling. I mean, if you let love try to become a feeling, you're going to be a mess. Love is an action. It's a, it's a stepping out and doing it. It's stepping out and being kind. It's stepping out and not holding a grudge. It's stepping out and not 
And, and you just go, just go to 1 Corinthians 13 and you will find out what love looks like and how you're supposed to live it out every day. The thing that we're, we're talking about here is, is that it comes to the point when I take a look at what I'm doing in my life and I have to start to do some deep reflecting on what I'm doing. Are the things that I'm saying, are the actions that I'm taking, uh, is my life going to be a hindrance or a stumbling block to somebody else? Is it going to be a hindrance, a stumbling block to another brother or sister in Christ? Is it going to be a hindrance for somebody who wants to come in and know about Christ? What does my f- life reflect? In, in stepping out and Doing what Paul's calling us to do means that the love that I have for others means that I'm going to forego my rights in certain areas. It means that, that I'm going to lay it down and not participate in it because I love that person too much and I want them to grow in their relationship with Jesus and I don't want to become the stumbling block for their growth. Let's move on. Verses 12 through 13. Thus, sinning against your brothers... And wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Oh, did I have to read that one? Think about that just for a minute. You sin against somebody else, you're sinning against Jesus. We want to think that our sin doesn't have any effect, that when I, when, when I tell a lie, when I gossip, when I exaggerate, when, I, uh, when I'm mean, when I steal, whatever it is, when I look at pornography, whatever it is, that that, that sin has no, you know, I mean, yeah, Jesus doesn't like it and it's bad, but we're okay. The first place we sin is a sin against Christ. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. You can tell we don't live in a church of vegetarians because there would have been a loud hallelujah, amen after that. (laughs) So every sin we commit is first and foremost a sin against Jesus. That... That's scary, isn't it? Because what would we do? We go like, I'm never forgiving that person because you know what they did to me? They've never come and asked for an apology, so I'm just like, I'm done with that. You know what? They've sinned against me. They've hurt me deeply, not having anything to do with them. Are you not glad that Jesus doesn't treat us the way we treat each other? Because when we sin against Jesus, is going like, whoa, dude, again, I'm done with you. There is nothing that we will ever do where Jesus says, all right, that's it. I've had enough. Jesus goes like, come on. You got a dirty diaper and we got to change it again. You're stinking the joint out. You're just kind of like pooping all over everything. But listen, I don't care how bad you stink or how messy you are. I still love you. And I'm going to care for you. And we say, oh, praise God. But I can't stand this guy and I'm never going to forgive him. Jesus goes, really? After all we've been through. 
So how can we exercise our rights without offending everyone? Because it seems like almost in a group like this, somebody's going to be offended about something that we do. So how do we, do? I mean, do we like, go like, oh, God is good all the time. All right. Well, we really don't want to become a stumbling block. I don't want to become a stumbling block to you. And I'm sure you don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody else. So the first thing we have to understand is that the privileges that we have are shared privileges. I have privileges. You have the same ones. They're shared. We share them together. We're in this thing called the church. And Jesus didn't die primarily for solitarily for a solitary individual. He died for his bride, his collective people, for his church. So we're all in this together. And so rights are never exercised in isolation because they always have bearing on those around us. We must never miss the sociological implications of the cross. It's not a question of what can Uh, of what one can or cannot do. It's a question of how to serve others and live a life that makes the gospel compelling. That's our rights and our privileges and our liberties. They're given to us to serve others. Secondly, a lack of care for Christ's bride, for the church, is a lack of care for Christ himself. When we sin against another brother or sister, we sin against Jesus. Jesus' teaching in the New Testament was that whatever is done to the least of one of these has been done to him. It doesn't just apply to those outside of the church or those in lesser places of life than we are. It applies to us inside the church as well. James puts it this way in James chapter 4. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And that opens up the whole thing wide open. We've been operating in this narrow confine saying that, that I didn't murder, I didn't commit adultery, I didn't let my eyes wander, I didn't do this and I didn't do that. And we've got a checklist of stuff we're going off and we're looking at the whole thing we're going like, pretty good. Me and Jesus, me and God, we're pretty good. And then all of a sudden there's this little poke right here in our heart you remember when I poked you and said, buy that poor guy lunch? Do you remember when I said, fill up their tank with gas? Remember when I said, put an extra $200 in the offering? Remember when I said, remember when I said, and we have these thoughts of the good things that we should have done that we didn't do, and God says to us, that's sin. For me, if there's something good I should have done, and I didn't do it, that's sin. He's not saying you. Because it may not apply to you. And I can't put on you what God's called me to do. I have to own it. And so we exercise our rights and privileges when we continually keep laying down our life, sacrificing our rights, because that's how we are truly free. If our rights are a demand or they have us bound up, we are not free. We're in bondage. And so now what Jesus does is he he gives us this freedom to love, free to forego, free to say 
No, and free to say yes, and, and free to wait. It doesn't have to happen right now. I can put this off till another time. It all leads to us using our liberty, liberties for the sake and the service of others, and that produces unity in the church. <gasps> Wow. What's unity? What is unity? I'm going to tell you, yeah, it's togetherness. But where does it come from? It comes from the Godhead. It comes from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's where we find our unity. Let's go back to verse 6 of this chapter. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. You exist for God. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist because of Jesus. That's why we're here today. Don't ever forget it. All things are ours in Christ. Therefore, all things are meant to be used in service and worship of Jesus. Only the gospel tells us that we are so free that we can give up our rights for the sake of another. Our identity is not bound in self-expression. It is bound up in the ultimate self-expression of God who is characterized by self-giving love. The Son gave voluntarily. There was voluntary self-renunciation and self-abasement. In other words... Jesus voluntarily did all this stuff for our freedom. We best not be trampling on it. The most entitled person in the universe gave up his rights for us. And you know what that is? That was the most powerful act of love ever. Amen? All right. Listen. I put our questions. Hey, um... We've got questions. Raise your hand if you don't have questions and you want them. The sheet of reflective questions. If you, um, yeah, um, Father John's going to go grab those and hand them out to you. Just keep your hands up. This isn't a test. Well, it kind of is. I'm not grading the paper Jesus is. So I'll start walking through them. Just keep your hand up because he's going to hand them to you, okay? Just keep your hands up. I know some of you feel like you're charismatic right now, but that's all right. Get it up there. Wash the ceiling. All right. What rights or freedom could you be using in a selfish or self-seeking way? What are the privileges or liberties that you're enjoying that could cause the downfall of another brother or sister? What is the impact of your actions, words, and suggestions in your home, workplace, and recreation? How are you using your freedom in Christ to serve others? Take them home. Write out your answers. Swap them with your spouse. Have a discussion about it. Step into what God's calling you to do. Amen? Our Father, we thank you today that you've given us all kinds of freedom. 
But the freedom that you've called us to is a freedom to serve, a freedom to love, a freedom to give, a freedom to enjoy all the benefits that we have in you. And we're just simply asking you today, God, to impress upon our hearts how we do these things so that it brings glory to your name and moves the kingdom of God into people's hearts and grows us as we grow with each other. Help us not to become the stumbling block. Help us to be aware of what we're doing and how it has effects on other people. Help us to live as though Jesus were leading us by the hand that we would, we would take a look at how we love one another and then live it out the way you've called us to. Help us to get out of orthodoxy and into orthopraxy. Not for anything else, but for your glory and our good. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.